the the truth is I wanted to be an artist, but as an Arab kid, that my, my mom was like, ha ha ha. Actually, it's funny because in in Arabic, the term architect actually has the word engineer in it. So I think that's the reason I got the path. Hey there, listeners. This is editing enough. Jumping in, quick heads up about today's episode. Joining us is the incredible Reem Al Wahabi, design leader at DeepL. We got something extra special lined up for you. So we're treating you with a two-parter. Yes, it's one of those rare and special ones. So get ready for the part one of Insightful Journey with Reem. So listeners, today we're hosting a dear friend of mine, Reem Al Wahabi, design manager at DeepL and Supermom. She's an architect turned UX designer. She calls herself a third culture kid and live in four countries already. She's deeply empathetic and a forceful user advocate. The reason we connected at Autoscar24, where we work together. She's known for her cool workshops, always getting the best of us. Rim, welcome. We're very happy to have you. Woo! Welcome to the show, <laughs> Well, thank you for that kind introduction. I mean, I'm just, I'm super excited I'm just to be being here. realistic, Rim. So what we're going to talk today, Enoch, we have prepared a little bit of Rim's background, which is a very interesting fact that she's coming from architecture. We're going to learn about differences and overlaps. We're going to discuss about her time in different countries and um, what she learned, what happened moving when she moved to Germany as an expat. The, the cultural differences, of course, our favorite topic. Then we're going to talk about her experience at Outer Scout. That's where we met. Um, the challenges, the good stuff. Um, her time at, as a head of product at Predium. And then finally, in her recent role at DeepL. So, how are you feeling, Rim? Ready? <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited for, that you guys are doing this podcast. I, as somebody who consumes product podcasts a lot, because as a mom, I'm often on the go when I can do my have my product research time. And of course, I really enjoyed working with you both at at our previous job or like our previous lives. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's so great because you know I think that the the, the tech scene in Europe is still at a size where you really make so many connections in every every job that you have and it really helps you sort of understand the the scene a lot and i learned a lot from from both of you um especially david when it came to startup world we you and i had a lot of chats about what it means to work in a startup so That's thanks right. for having me <laughs> i'm excited you're very well we we connected for briefly actually at our scout because then you went into maternity leave so that was funny because we, we we pretty much connected in record time and then we stay in touch during that time before she came back. Now let's tell the audience who Reem is. Um, tell us about your background, Reem. Sure. So I, I, as you said, I call myself a third culture kid and that's generally when you were raised in a, a different context than your parents. So in my case, my family, they hail from Iraq. So my, my parents are from Baghdad. And they left um, in the 80s to, to England. That's where I was born. And my, my father, he studied there, did his PhD. And then eventually we ended up in Australia where he was teaching. And we, the whole family, moved along with him. My mom at some point was like, you guys have to connect to your Arabic culture. And then we moved to Dubai where we could, you know, be mm -hmm. closer to family and, you know, connect to our Arabic roots. 
Um, and then eventually I came to Germany to, to study and just also to for, sort of forge my own path um, at the time. I'm an architect, so I, I studied architecture. The, the truth is I wanted to be an artist, but as an Arab kid, that my, my mom was like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and so architecture like, like was Beyonce close enough. kind of artist? Or? <laughs> no, I, I, I used to love painting. I was like, re I was really into painting and like sort of fine art. And my mother, my mom was just like, nope no way <laughs> you're going to study something you're, you know it's like you have to be an engineer or a doctor so architecture was a compromise actually it's funny because in in arabic the term architect actually has the word engineer in it so i think that's the reason i got the pass <laughs> and in germany I also con con continued architecture studies did my master's but after a few years of working here as an architect i wanted to make a change Working as an architect isn't as glamorous as I had expected. And I really went into, into design. I really loved like coming up with concepts. It was always like, okay, we're solving a problem. And, you know, you, you have all these different ways to solve the problem. And my master's thesis was about urban design. And that's so, it's, it's like very conceptual. But if the reality of being an architect is a lot of, it's a lot of very small nitpicky sort of work and very detail oriented and, and disclaimer, I'm not super detail oriented. So it was, it was, off, it was often like a mismatch uh, for me. And yeah, I really, right? I, yeah, I, I really want to do something more creative. I ended up Googling my skills, which was like, oh, I like to present. I like design. I like concepts. I like, I think I just Googled a bunch of words together and then UX came up and I was like, what is this UX thing? And I sort of just like reading about it. And then I was reading some job posts and, that, and every single job listing was like describing me, but with, you know, some words I didn't know about, like some agile terminology that I had never heard of. So I was like, okay, you know what? I have learned about 10 different kinds of software as an architect. I can learn another software. I taught myself vision. I taught myself sketch. I taught myself, what was the, oh yeah, I was using Adobe XD before Figma as well, which was, I really liked Adobe XD. I want to actually double click on the, on the third culture uh, thing. Right? You are third culture kid too? I think so. Are you yeah. trying to uh, No, you're not, David. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Shut I am up. not. <laughs> Tell me why no. I'm not. Yes. Can you define third culture yeah. kid? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit, but so a third culture kid is growing up in a context different than their parents, mm -hmm. but their parents are from a completely different culture. So in my case, my parents are from Iraq, but I grew up in England and Australia and UAE. So I've never been to the place that they grew up in, mm -hmm. and my entire perception of my, their culture is that nostalgia. And that's what and that's what makes me. I think that the description of third culture is like your parents' culture, and then your own culture, and then you've created a third culture out of it, out of this out of okay. this new experience. So I don't know about you, Enoch. I, I don't really know your story. Yeah, I mean, I, I am TCK, so mm -hmm. TCK. You know, yeah, that's the, All right. that's the acronym. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, my parents are Korean, but I moved when I was six to Kazakhstan. So my mm -hmm. like upbringing was Kazakhstan. I thought I was Korean in one hand. But when the when I meet Koreans when we visit Korea, they're like, "You're not a Korean, uh -huh. right?" And a the reminder, exactly. Like you speak, you kind of speak like us, but you don't. Mm. Um, you, I mean, your lingo is a little off. Mm -hmm. The only Korean that I speak with my parents. When I'm in Kazakhstan, I think I'm more Kazakh or Russian. But the locals are like, "No, you're not a local," right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of create this identity of third world. Like I, I don't belong both worlds at the same time. Um, you feel like you can adapt really well, right? There's strength and weaknesses of TCK. Yeah. But, yeah. Very nice. It, exactly. And I think so. So I don't speak my mother tongue, which is Arabic. And 
I, I speak English. That's my my mother tongue, and I'm teaching my daughter that English as my mother tongue, despite the fact that my mother tongue should be Arabic. And that's the result of like not growing up in the same context as my family. It, the studies on these kind on this kind of phenomenon is that often these kids are really chameleons. They can really integrate well in different settings. They like there's just a tendency to be better at certain soft skills because of this mm-hmm. experience. There's also the negative side, a lot of identity crisis. You know, you don't know who you are. And for me, that manifested in really my career often feels like who I am. And so as an architect, that really was who I was. Like I was an architect. So also why changing careers can be very painful sometimes because you often like losing your, it's like a new identity. And, and sometimes I felt like yeah, I was also getting very attached as a UX. That was my identity. You know? um, and there's chaos again until you find the new normal. But I know you both, and I can settle for a fact that, yes, you, you definitely are uh, people that can get along in any context. And I know you, Enoch, well enough. I took you with some Argentinians one night, which even for me, they were two Argentinians. And um, yeah, Enoch was just like, a, you know, like one more there. I mean, don't the fiesta fiesta, right? And of course. A couple shots of tequila. <laughs> that's the that's that's one word you, you, you exactly. kept saying, right? Fiesta fiesta. Uh, and, and we're good. You know? yeah. Again, adaptability as TCKs, I think, <laughs> is something that it's, it's a good strength. Cool. Well, so we talk about how you end up in design and the, the thought process and even the actions that you took to get there. What do you think there's overlap? Well, there's so much overlap. I, I think any design anyone from any design background there's a lot of overlap going into ux i personally think that architects have an advantage because of the fact that architecture is so multidisciplinary we always have this joke in our in architecture that an architect knows a little bit about everything an engineer knows a lot about one thing so if you might be designing a hospital one day you might be designing a school and you have to immerse yourself in so many different pieces of that to try and come up with a concept or solution is i designed a prison i designed a like a homeless shelter. And I think this really lends itself to tech because every problem is kind of unique in that way. And you have to think about the context holistically. You have to also think about it in terms of what research you need, what information do I need to gather. For me, it was a really easy transition. The other part of it that I think really relevant is that as an architect, you have to work with so many stakeholders. Like you're working with your clients, you're working with mm-hmm. some, you're working with like three different experts in your team who might be one, one is an expert in building like a like a garage or like an underground parking. One is an expert in building roofs and you have to co- collaborate with them in your, in your company. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's just a team sport architecture. You have to work with engineers, landscape architects. So this team sport aspect helps architects, I think, thrive in, in a team sport environment, which is this, this utopic trio environment in a, in a scrum mm-hmm. team, which we all hope for because you know that you are not the boss. You are not the one who knows everything. So I think for me, it was an easy transition. Once I learned Obviously, the lingo. I guess I've never seen UX as also generally in that sense, based on what you're saying. You, you know a little bit about everything. And you also sometimes have overlap with, with a PM. Right? Reem, I mean, your experience, it's easy transition also because you have a design background, but also the position when we work together, you weren't junior designer. You had your team. Like, the stakeholder that you're talking about, I have a designer he just won't come to these meetings because he doesn't want to deal with it, right? <laughs> like his face, like you can tell he's bored, right? Like, let me go put my headphones and design. Let me just go behind <laughs> the website and browse through. Yeah, I think that's why it's a good match for you. You have that social skill set coming from TCK, third culture and adaptability, resilience. Leadership. Um, 
yeah. at the end, right? Exactly. Um, and it's, that was an easy transition. Mm-hmm. If there were one thing you would say, coming from architect to UX design, one thing that was like, oh, wow, this is different, or this was totally This new. is a trap, right? I guess, if, like, just to answer your question, like, what is the trap? I think the trap with architects and all designers is that you can fall in love with your designs and your babies. And this is the thing you have to like unlearn is what will help you be successful is to be able to take feedback, synthesize it and develop and iterate what you're working on. And I find a lot of designers and those coming from architecture specifically, they want to feel like the expert. And in the end, it is a team sport. Unless you are all sitting in a separate room, handing over requirements, you need to have a much more holistic perspective. And as a designer, I do think you have to have that responsibility. You know, uh, product managers are often are doing so much at once. I have a lot more empathy towards that yet now after my current experience. But as a designer, you need to take on some of that load of holistic thinking and think a little bit more about the whole product, about the user journey, about the engineer, understand the tech stack, understand that what's happening in the strategy because you need to make those decisions with because what you design will be there for maybe a year, two years. It has consequences. And I feel like yeah. as an architect, you understand that because what you're building is going to get built. And and so I believe it's just really important to have that perspective. I like that you that you mentioned that, Reem, because that is probably one of the things that I like the most about you when I met you. I honestly think that that is not taken as seriously by many designers. And as a PM, I would always prefer to work with someone that wants to be involved, that understand all this, that wants to be part of the process, to speak, right? Because you know, being a PM can be a little bit lonely at, at times. And I feel that when you have a partner um, in design that it has that level of overlap with you, that can be very, very powerful. Not just design, designers, I think the engineering managers have to step up as well. And they have to also think about the product and think about the users and, and when everybody is assuming this responsibility, that's when, as you said, you know, less bad decisions are happening because less is falling through the cracks. And I think that nobody can, can really sit there and just have an execution perspective and expect the product manager to make all mm-hmm. the decisions. Yeah, that, definitely. I mean, that's why the, the trio. What I've seen is ideally you have someone during discovery, like that partner is going to be design. And then during delivery, it's going to be mostly the EM or the team lead. And yes, of course, ideally I can get both on both. Exactly. <laughs> As a PM, if I can get one out of two, design on my side or EM on my side, it's already a win. If you have, yeah. if you have two, that's fantasy, I feel like, for me. It's yeah. like, so, I mean, I, so let me ask you guys, how, how many times have you ever had an experience of working in the trio? Like how many teams have you had? Like how many times in your career have you had a trio experience? Like where you really had a design, PM, EM, a triad? Five? Five times? Five times, wow. I mean, for me, it's like, if we have that triad, one person is, it's, it's a tech lead or it's a senior engineer who wearing that hat, right, to support. It's not like the company's like, okay, you're EM, you're a design lead, and you're PM, you three will lead the team. No, they don't have to be leads. But it just means that like in that team, that those people you're working with, whatever the lead engineer, senior designer, that they assume that responsibility with you or like that they take on that load and they really are as supportive and you feel like you have that support system. It doesn't have to mm-hmm. be a title. Yeah. yeah. I think being proactive, that should be a non-negotiable. No, but I, I get what you mean. Um, yes, you have a designer, you have a tech lead or a senior engineer, whatever the title is. How do you build that collaborative atmosphere 
and being like we're all invested as a PM designer and tech lead. Like, how do you build that? Because, like you said, most of the times, even if they have a title or not, EMs and designers like, no, it's your job, PM. But how do you build that teamwork to push forward as a team? I'm so happy you asked this question because I'm. This is like the reason I wrote that article about small talk because <laughs> this was, of course, my experience back then was pre-COVID, so pre-remote work. But imagine me, you know, working in a tech company after an architecture. I have so I had so much to learn. I was in a situation where I was like, okay, I'm a good designer. I give myself that credit, but now I have to learn this whole new world. And who do I have to learn it from? But my colleagues. And I walked into my, uh, first of all, the UX designers in the time were all scattered because they all belonged to a different team. So there was no design team for me to sort of hang out with and learn from. I was like on my first day in a room full of engineers who weren't talking to me. <laughs> and I was just like, and, and they had had some really bad experiences with designers. So they were kind of burnt out from designers. So they were already like looking at me a little bit like, oh no, is she going to be a big pain in my ass? And I, and I had was, that. This by and the course, way, out of scout, right? Yes, this is Autoscout, Scout. Because before that, I was working as a freelancer, really early stage mm -hmm. work. So it was, it was a very different context. But this is my first opportunity to really be in part of a triad, as I say. And then, of course, you have a PM who's super overworked and fighting for like resources. And, and so this is the situation you're sort of coming into. And so for me, I had to really learn. I had to learn a lot and I had to connect with people. And, I, and small talk was my, was my skill. And I was relentless. I would walk into the office every morning and force, my, force everyone to speak to me and force this connection. And even one developer, him and I had this joke because I would, he would have his headphones and I would just go up to his desk and be like, hello. And he'd be like, take off his headphones and give me a look. And I'd be like, hi, how are you? And he'd just be like, I hate that question. Like, why did we ask that question? How are you? And I'd just be like, I'm really curious. Like, how are you doing? And so for, for the rest of our time there, he would always just make this joke when he saw me. Like, at some point, he just he put up like a post-it note on on his on his computer and just pointed to it and said, "Like, bye." We we became friends even, and he was to a lot of people kind of a scary developer who people were afraid of. But me and him really connected, and we became friends. And and he helped me so much. Like, we talked so much about design systems, and I was working in the app team. He supported me so much in understanding how iOS how to build great apps. I learned so much, and that was super important. When I would show up once in a while, I'd be like, "Guys, we're having a workshop." I would get the eye rolls, but they would still come join me for my workshop <laughs> um, because they trusted me and they knew that I was there to, to be part of this Waste team. Waste their time, basically. Yeah. I think some of, a lot of people are so skeptical about workshops. And, and I, I agree. Some of them really, really suck. And some people really just are <laughs> wasting. And they're very expensive and wasting a lot of time. But I think that getting everyone to take responsibility for the product together it will have long-term benefits. I'm, I really even hate the term UX or UX designer because... Every single person is responsible for UX. Every mm -hmm. single person on the team is responsible for the user experience. And who can influence it more than the developers? I was in a, a Google workshop and they were saying that when a page loads slowly, the brain is having a reaction as if it's watching a horror movie. So when you're seeing a page <laughs> load because it's slow, you are having like a physiological reaction as if you're like yeah. in a horror, watching a horror film. And that's, and who's going to make that? Am I as a designer going to fix the loading speed? No, the engineer has to give a shit and make that happen. Or the, or the PM has to prioritize that on the roadmap. And that has a bigger impact on the user experience than any pretty button that I'm going to design. So this is, this is why we have to all together assume this responsibility. And as a designer, I have that, I would say, luxury of pushing that collaboration because the PMs are really, really burnt out. The second the PMs trust you, 
you have a lot of more chances to grow in the organization. So these relationships are really important for, for your own personal development as well. I'm very happy that you're actually sharing that point of view, Reem, because in design, uh, product, it's very much involved, or at least from my point of view, should be very involved in the conceptual design and the interaction design. Mm. So for instance, I cannot design shit, but I can critique a good design. And also, already, you know, I can use this to my advantage as a former engineer. I kind of know what's possible and, and what's going to be a pain in the ass. But yeah, I think the misconception around design versus UX design and just UX, what should I expect from design? What is accountable for? How much is going to be involved in, in all these product decisions, right? And that's why I think, you know, setting those expectations into something like a responsibility matrix or some kind of expectation workshop um, where you can just say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I expect from you all. And every single role does the same thing. Reem, one, one question. And I don't want to milk it and juice it out these wisdom for you. But again, <laughs> I want these tangible like, action do. items. As a product manager, small talk, building relationship, it's really important. But we're talking about Europe, we're talking about Germany. If there's three things that Germans lack, it's flavor, humor, and of course, <laughs> small talk. And I'm guessing your engineer, um, he was German. He was, yeah. Spill the beads. What's the, your go-to of this camouflage small talk technique that you do in person, so even on Zoom calls? Because sometimes as a product manager, I try too hard. And I feel like, oh shit, you know, you're I'm, pushing it. Yeah. Or I'm trying too hard. Like I, I look desperate. Mm. I think this is a really simple answer. It's about, it's about like vulnerability. And I think it's okay to be desperate and be like, I'm sorry, I'm annoying you. And I'm aware this is a pain in your ass, but I need you. And I think I was very honest and transparent. And also I really dug deep into what happened in the past with previous design role. Mm -hmm. And if and people don't take the time to really understand that, like the past, and, and uh, often PMs are arriving in a, in a shit show of a team that, you know, has been through their third PM and there's a reason and, and you're there to not repeat those mistakes. And I think that people are just not taking that time. And so for me, I really dug deep into like what happened before with previous design experiences with designers with previous experiences with product. And I tried to like not repeat those mistakes and really learn from that. The problem is David, you know, this roles of responsibility matrix that every team thinks they have to do. I think sometimes it's, it's a waste of opportunities because as you said, engineers can give great feedback about design. PMs can give great feedback about design. I, I believe in culture over processes and it's about creating a culture where you all care and, and, and implicitly understand what you're supposed to, to do and not have to make it so explicit. Once it becomes explicit, something's already wrong, if you ask me. And something's already like not working. So yeah, it, it, and, and trust me, I've been through enough of these roles of responsibilities workshops. And I'm like, what would work better for this team as a retro than sitting together and writing like a, a, something you can generate with ChatGPT of what every position should be doing? Because there's a reason you're not doing it. Like if, if your designer is not executing discovery or whatever, there's a reason they're not doing it. They are not empowered. They don't have the time. It could be they don't have the skills. They need the training. There's a lot of reasons that, mm -hmm. that those things are happening. And I think just stating it again is not going to help solve the core problem that you're trying to solve. I think that that needs to be solved by the team. I, I definitely agree with you. Stated this again, won't, won't cut it, right? Um, yeah. I think do it at the beginning when you're forming the team in the forming phase, especially if you're just new, for instance, as a PM, to me, that is super valuable to do during the first three months. 
Now, if you're already one year in, two years in, and you need to go through something like that, oh, 100%, something is broken. <laughs> but even doing it in the beginning, you have no con. You're sitting there talking about things without having experienced the process. Actually, it's, it's my strategy entering a place to like not touch things in the beginning and really understand how they work before I go in there and try and change things because sometimes things work really well in their own weird way. And you don't want to mess with that. There's something that there's some dynamic. And so, for example, in this team that I was working in, there was some like very strong personalities in the engineering team. And that didn't work so well with some product and, and UX. Did. And, but I didn't want to break that. I wasn't going in there to try and change that dynamic because mm -hmm. that team took so much responsibility. They were an amazing team. They shipped double as fast as other teams because they were they had this autonomy. So I didn't I didn't go in there and break it. I went in there and fit myself in to that structure and was like, hey, how can I help you guys work better? How can I support you more? How can you how can I learn from you? And and I didn't try and change that team in, in a sense. Whereas some designers or PMs come in and be like, that's not how we do things, you know? Um, this is how we should do things. And, and I think that that can often break the good things in teams that work really well. Yeah, because you need to listen first. Right? Then when you ask them, hey, how can I help you? And how how can I support you? I think to me that is already setting expectations. Hey, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Right? I'm not here to tell you how we're going to change things and so on. And I, I can definitely see, and it happened to me in the past where you can feel the pain. If you're the third PM in, in a year and a half or something like that, imagine how open they're going to be to whatever you have to say. <laughs> Why are you going to be different? <laughs> right? So you really need to work on relationship building. I would call it just you're working on winning trust. Like the currency that you need is trust. And that's what you're working on gaining in the teams and in every interaction that you're you're having. And it's with everybody in, in any job you're, you're doing. So in, with HR, with people team, with, yeah, with, with the person working in the cafe who, who's every day going to make you coffee. You need a good coffee to get through your day. So you need to like gain some trust. Um, otherwise, they're going to make you a, a, a burnt up roasted coffee and you can't really drink that shit. You, you need to build trust. And it comes from putting your ego You just mentioned ego and vulnerability. Can you share a little bit about seeing people's ego, especially like male ego? I mean, us include, like myself included, right? How do you navigate through that, right? Especially these stakeholders. You see all the executives, majority of the executives. I'm putting shades now, sorry. It's male, <laughs> white males, yeah. right? How do you navigate that to buy their trust, right? And yeah, guide the ship together. Diversity is a really difficult topic in tech because because of the fact that most engineers are the, there's a huger ratio of of male engineers that means that immediately a tech org company has a discrepancy from the beginning from the get-go so for me entering a team when i first joined autoscat and there was only two of us that were women on that team and that's how that's just the, the normal ratio that you experience when you have a team of really strong energy and strong personalities it can be really intimidating You have to make sure you're taken seriously. And I think that's that's something as a, not just as a woman, anyone has to really work on that. And I think when you're when you're a minority in any situation, you have to try and find a way to be taken seriously while still gaining the trust of others. I, when I became a team leader and started hiring, the problem became even more clear to me. It's, it's happening from the very, very beginning in the hiring pipeline and mm -hmm. in the way that we're, we're hiring. Yeah. And, and also, David, I, I have to tell you, like in the startup world, the discrepancy is even more because like, like the, the way that startups are operating, there's so much masculine energy. You know, we, we have to win. We have to. We're a sports yeah. team, kind of like this dynamic. And, that, and, and that's driving 
teams through really toxic phases and they believe it's necessary to survive the ups and downs of the startup. And that's just not an environment where a lot of women actually want to be in, especially mothers or especially people who are, you know, who are less risk averse. But what's happening is most companies are being built by men only. And then eventually they have to integrate women or a bigger diverse voice into this very masculine company. And I yeah. understanding that from the beginning is I think we have to solve the problem, I think, from the very, very beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And by the way, I, I want to add that when at least when I joined at Autos, I, I think you managed to succeed doing that um, at the company, Rim, because, you know, you had a strong influence, like your opinion mattered a lot. Like, again, I saw the buy-in, the moment you offer to run a workshop about egg, always having an opinion, always asking the right questions, which is even more important if, if you ask. The other advice that I give anybody is to ask questions and to ask questions everywhere. And I mean that if you're in a meeting and you haven't spoken for the entire meeting, you shouldn't be there. And, and you should probably, if you have a question in your head that you're too afraid to ask, ask it. I try not to worry about looking stupid. That's something I just try and put put aside because, and I think that really helped me a lot to like just ask the question that was almost obvious. There were these elephant in the room questions that nobody's asking, <laughs> and they ha they often have a huge impact on the business and the users. And it's almost like everyone's too afraid to ask those questions, and, and it, it doesn't have to be in a negative way, like oh, I question this strategy, but it has to be like, have we considered this piece? Or have you guys all read it? You know, try and question and bring up those things that perhaps are missing in the context, and not be afraid to be the one to say that. Um, yeah, and, and we have been together in those meetings. At least I can remember a few. I think you also, Enoch, as well. And I always think about these questions. That you, you should come from um, from a place of curiosity, right? There, exactly. there, there are unproductive questions sometimes. The typical leading questions are you're basically stating your own opinion already. So I get if if you know those kind of questions they are not contributing right. but if you're coming like honestly from a curious place and and you really want to understand like how did we come up with this decision and how we consider xyz and as long as there's a space where people listen that can only be a good thing but you, you know that phenomenon when you're in, in school and then the the class is over and then the teacher asks does anybody have any questions and if you ask a question at that point you're, you're keeping the class going longer and everyone's really annoyed with you. It's like, ah, oh, put your hand down. Don't ask any questions. And that's often the attitude I feel like in the workplace. Like everyone's like, oh, don't make this, don't don't prolong this conversation any longer than it has to be. Um, and I'm just like the opposite. I'm like, you brought us in for this very expensive meeting. Are we actually going to talk about anything of substance, or could this have been an email? Like, like, what, what, why, why are we all here if not to like share our our our, our diverse perspective? You hear it here. First. But before I want to add a little bit of a spice and ask you about, you know, your your experience working with PMs, I want to hear the good <laughs> traits of PMs, the, oh. the extremely annoying and I hope I never work with this person again traits as well because you know yeah. always the B side. You've been you've been complimenting PMs right now, which we love. Come on, but give us the juice. Like, could put some shades on these two male PMs. It's your time. Uh, so I, I think I've worked with so many PMs at this point. Um, also, with the the sometimes the revolving door of PMs in some teams. So, let's let's talk about it. Something I've noticed is that there are often PMs that are 
when it comes to discovery, and, and by the way, I have more empathy towards that now that I, I also worked in product, that they're really focusing so much on this execution and not enough on the why we're doing anything in the discovery planning. Like we end up in the planning cycle and a PM is there with nothing on the table. And and I always get super frustrated because I'm like, hey, as it, you have a designer or research at your, at, your, at your disposal, you need to spend some time thinking about the next quarter and not arriving at the quarter with nothing on your roadmap or nothing in your backlog. And I think this is a problem where there's not enough time and dedication to discovery. But, but in the end, what is your job? Like what, what should you be owning if not the, the future? But if you arrive at the planning cycle and you have nothing, you, nothing to show or no point of view, I get very frustrated as a designer because I have a lot of ideas and a lot of perspectives, but I need to have someone who really is working on, Hey, is this really a viable direction to go on? Is this really desirable? Like what are we, what are you actually trying to validate? And I think there's just so much emphasis on the execution side of, of being a PM, which I understand now also having, having been through it, but I'm like, Hey, let's have like some worse requirements and trust the engineering team and UX team a little bit more and focus on the stuff where a PM really can make a difference. The other thing that I get super frustrated with with PMs is that I think that they are not working on like like their their soft skills and stakeholder management management skills are just like hey how are you in this meeting and not trying to convince everybody about what you're doing you're in this meeting and just taking like taking this feedback from leadership and not actually stepping up and saying what you really think and then coming to me later on and being upset about that meeting but you did not step up and actually defend your choices or defend your reasoning like where have you learned why are you not working on those skills that will really help your team and help your agenda in the long term. And then the other thing is like the interpersonal relationships between PMs. Like, I think it's so great that you guys in Berlin had your little click and you were hanging out, but so many PMs are on their own, not even turning to other PMs in the same company and not even mm-hmm. sharing experiences with each other. Like, and us as designers, you know, designers, we come together as a unit and we try and we see us as one team, but PMs don't see themselves as a team. They see themselves as a team, like so many different minor teams. And then there's so many conflicts between departments where two PMs are not getting along. And I'm just like, you guys are on the same team. Like <laughs> you, you, you should have the same objectives. And if your incentives don't match, then talk to management. If two PMs have opposing incentives, there's a problem in the strategy. So you guys have to figure that out because you are working on completely opposite parts of the, of the, <laughs> of the equator. And you need to figure out why. Yeah. That's clearly a leadership issue. And seeing the whole picture, right? Yeah. Again, like, let's give an example. Platform, let's say, companies, right? Like, you have you have the consumers, the creators, right? Or buyers and sellers. We were in buyer's team when it comes to, let's say, Auto Scout, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have the different PM department who's like, oh, we got to help the dealership who sell the product. We're fighting over resources, fighting over strategies because we want to grow our circle. And then we have another product department and you know, whole half of the departments so they value the sellers, right? And like you said, and like our small talk of PMs is, <laughs> thank God we didn't have, we were enemies, that's why we're here, but I, I will I will chat up with the seller team, you know, have a couple of drinks, like, oh, by the way, you know, like, why don't you slow down on your, on your, on your work so that I can, our department can do whatever, or can we... Sh- well, borrow- this is coming to your plate. This is coming. Yeah. Whether like, you like it or not. Yeah. Coming. Or like, can I borrow your designer mile? Mm-hmm. You know, again, all the small talk for us, like literally a war zone between two different teams, mainly happening between product. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that makes no sense because the buyer and seller team are not opposing each other. Like, like there, there's a flywheel where, where certain things will impact both sides and help both mm-hmm. sides be successful. The synergy. So, yeah. And, and I think that's like, 
we're, we're often always focusing on if there's a conflict and often there's something like then as I said, something has to be clarified between buyer and seller. And there are definitely things that happen top down, totally get it, but they, who's in a better position to solve those problems than, than if they collaborate together and understand those, those problems together. And I just think that there's just a reluctance to work together as a PM or with other PMs. And I think it's, mm. it's super odd to me. I would also say that um, to tie this back to what you mentioned before, to focus on execution. So you're too much into the weeds and the details and you're just trying to run against a random deadline. So you're focusing on delivery. You don't really have the energy to look at the bigger picture. And I've seen that trap, the building trap, the feature requests, the powerful stakeholder overriding whatever strategy proposal or whatever initiative. And again, lack of empowerment at the end, that makes the problem even worse. Mm -hmm. But it happens in bigger companies. It's a different dynamic in, in a startup, I would say. Totally. I think in a startup, there are different challenges for products. You often wear more hats in a startup and you, you do have to have that holistic perspective, but you're, you're sort of up against just, it's often more of a resource game, a resource challenge. It's, it's a different part of the whole thing. Like we talked about that a lot, David, how can you as product position the value that you bring to the team and to the company with leadership? That's the big challenge in, in a startup as a product has to really often lead, has to show the value of, of good product thinking and, and, you know, connecting to users and design thinking or whatever it is, the product is responsible for showing that value to leadership and they have to care enough to do that yeah. while okay. shipping a shit ton of stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I can speak as a PM because what you mentioned the bad PM, right? Whether good PM, bad PM by Reem. There we go. <laughs> You're both coming out soon. Like you mentioned, PM time. who don't have a roadmap ready, right? Or PM who cannot chime in or lead the stakeholders. And I've been there. And I think one of the advice that I would give, and, and I want to also hear your advice, is take a breather, right? And like you mentioned, connect with your team. We're on the same team. I was so gung-ho, pushed over by stakeholders. We have to execute, execute, execute. I think you're right. I have a lot of empathy to to PMs being completely steamrolled and like, and, and feeling like they don't have, they're, they're not empowered. And, and in the end, they are just glorified POs executing on, on a strategy that has been put down. And everyone feels that pain, like the engineers design, everyone is feeling that pain collectively together. But as the PM, that's the sad piece. Like you are this quasi leader. So it is, it is kind of your role to, to help bring morale back to this team and try and fight and do and, and work, you know, and, and, and really believe in your opinions and be able to justify, learn how to make a good business case for your opinion. And it could take two quarters to get what you want on the roadmap, but you have to do that work too, to get that work mm -hmm. done. And I think that, and that, that's what I think people have like often just don't realize that they have that, that opportunity as product to do that. It's one of the reasons I, I went to product after UX, because I got sick of just like having to wait for product to get these ideas going in a sense that we had invested a lot of research and time in from the design time. And it just, we relied on product to really get this thing going or get this thing on the roadmap. Mm -hmm. Actually, let's talk about that real quick. <laughs> so you transitioned from architecture to UX design, right? And you mentioned your adaptability, resilience, being vulnerable really helped you to transition architect to UX, which was easy. While working at UX manager, right, you work really closely with the product, and now, currently, you're head of product. 
Was the transition from UX product different from architect to design, um, or was it similar? And just want to hear that two different transitions and just looking back, compare and contrast. So I, I had actually three. One was UX to product. The second was small comp- a big company to startup. And the third was B2C to B2B. So I went for it a complete 360. <laughs> and I would say for me, it was definitely the hardest career transition that I made and the, one of the hardest experience. It's a, it's a really tough role. And it's, it's one of the reasons like I, I'm transitioning back into UX and design because I do see it's, my, it's where my strengths my strength really work best for a company and for a team where I can be in this role, as I said, to coach people, to hire great talent, to, to try and build this culture that I really believe in. Um, whereas where, what was needed in a startup at the time or what is needed right in, in this role in, a, in an early stage startup is just you need somebody to really get shit done, really execute, really sort of connect. And it's, it's a lot more, I would say, less teamwork. Maybe, David, you can, you can give me your opinion about this, but it is a lot less teamwork. It is a lot, it's a lot more, you have to rely on yourself. And, you ha- and it's a lot less of a dem- democratic process in, in a startup because there's no time. There's no, you have to just get going. And I think this was, this was the hardest part for me, I would say. I'm just not used to being a sort of, this is how it's going to be. I'm used to working on things together and really collaborating and having the confidence to make those decisions as a product. I, I, had, I had not developed those, that skill yet, I would say. And I think that it takes some time to develop that. Um, something that you, David, have a lot of, and it's why I really admire about how you approach things is you have, you have this product thinking gut, you know, sense of how you, how you approach problems. And I think I, I jumping in for me, I, I don't think I had developed that enough yet. So I think it was a premature transition on my part. And I think that I, I definitely, what I loved about it was wearing the many hats. I love creating the roadmap. I love, you know, just thinking about like how, how the team can collaborate. I felt like my, my relationship with engineers, I could finally lead a team the way I wanted the team to be led, you know, in terms of relationships with the engineers and how collaboration should be between all the different stakeholders. So I felt like that part, I was really in my element, but it was more like this, this fast pace, you are being judged on what you ship sort of experience that, that really wasn't aligned with how I, I, I want to build products. And I think that's a combination of all of those things that really wasn't working in my wheelhouse. Not to say I didn't learn a lot or I haven't learned a lot. It was fantastic experience. And I think like I was so impressed with just how much we could ship compared to a big company. Just like by just we just like could could get so much out the door. And having that ability to just be like, okay, you two are a team now, engineer and a and a and a data scientist, go build this thing and we'll figure out how to make it work later. And that was so cool, like watching that happen. And I wish that we would do that more in, in big companies, just be like we don't need a PM and, and, and designer right now. Just you two go ahead and figure out what this means mm. and if we can do this. And I think this is the part of discovery that is not happening in, in big companies at all. It's all about like, okay, do users need this? Are we going to make money? But the feasibility research where you take an engineer and a data scientist, go, go, go see if we can build that. That doesn't happen. And I think that's, that's the problem where innovation is not happening. You're not actually taking even engineering capacity to try and innovate. That's, that's a real, right. real problem. Which, which startups do really well. They're just like, oh, you two go and solve that. We need that. Our competitors are building that. Go fix it. Go, go try and make it happen. I think it's, it's so, it was so, the energy was amazing and, and how we were just every week just getting so much out the door. <laughs> but yeah, as I said, the, the other side of it was the way that I really value the work, which is essentially as a team, was, was not really there. So it was very lonely. So I think this is just like the, 
yeah, the two sides of it that I wasn't ready for. And I must say also, I have a lot more empathy for the PM role because just all the little, all the <laughs> things you're juggling at you. once. New appreciation yeah. for the PM role I'm hearing. Yeah. All the things you're juggling at once, and <laughs> the way you're being judged, the way that, you know, you're, that the, the way that stakeholders are judging your performance is just, it's sometimes really frustrating because you, you know how much you're juggling and you, no one sees that work. It's just, it just has to get done. I do think that it is still my dream to lead a, to lead a product organization because I think that having a holistic perspective design, my experience in product right now, the way I believe in building great teams and great cultures, I think I still really want to do that from a, not just a design perspective, but from a product perspective. But I just believe it's about finding the right people and positioning everybody correctly in an organization. Yeah, wow, that, that, that was a lot. Uh, to unpack, but I think you're onto something when it comes to the startups. I personally enjoy a lot being able to be extremely pragmatic, right? Which is king in in a startup. But then the, there are major differences when it comes to a B two B versus a B two C company. And we talk about this a lot. Right? In your case, there was a B two B company, and sometimes you basically follow the contracts slash the money slash whoever you can sign and. That's your roadmap right there. That's it. And at the same time, it's a very different energy when you're pre-programmatic fit versus post-programmatic fit. So, well, but yeah. I mean, sounds like yeah. I mean, sounds like the founder vibe. You just mentioned it, right? All female founders, your product <laughs> design. You know, we just gotta we just gotta match it with a good female, you know, tech or I don't know, a couple other VCs. You know, and there we go. You know, there you have it. I mean, I, I'm putting it out there in my, my dream, but like, but, but just to what you said also, David, like, I think that I also would have judged the PMs a lot more for how little research was being done. And now, and also then living it as a PM, I see why, why little research is being done because it's just like, you have to be pragmatic and you have to make these decisions like very quickly on the fly. And in the end, research is the first thing that you deprioritize. And, and as a designer, someone who loves, like, who was so pro, we have to, we have to research this, we have to validate this. I was getting stuff out the door too that I, in the past, would have judged the PM for getting that out the door. But mm -hmm. in the end, you have like getting something out the door is a higher priority than getting than validating it because you have you, a user can test that you get some feedback at some point, and that's better than not doing anything. So I think it's like you know, it's I, I have a lot more empathy for that conundrum with that paradox that that PMs feel like should we get something half-assed out the door or should we spend more time on it? What's 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 the worst thing that we could do? Mm -hmm. There's also an, another element that I think if you ever try to, you know, start your own startup or, or launch your own product or something, um, because it's, you know, sometimes it's easy to fall into the meme, you know, go and, and fight with the founders, you know, the, the, at the end, if we're going with an opinion, better be mine, you know, and all these kind of jokes that we, we make. But let's also not forget that the reason and a startup gets built in the first place is because one of the founders, at least, if they are going to have any chances, they have an industry insight, right? They hold the keys of the entire domain when it comes to the problem space. Now, you as a product leader or a UX researcher or whatever, you'll have to somehow tap into that knowledge first before what to their eyes might be seen as a waste of time. What are you trying to use all these weeks just to come up with the research of the stuff that I already know? Exactly. That, right? So you also need to put yourself in their feet, right? in, 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 in their place and, and think, well, 
there's a balance here. I, I need enough conviction on, on my side to come with this protocol strategy, but at the same time, I need them to see that I'm moving fast with the things that we have already enough conviction, right? So it's a sweet spot in there, not very, very easy to get there, but I, that would be my take on that one. That was really well described, and that's that, that's a really, and that's where I think that it's really. I think you also gave me that advice when I joined the when I joined the startup or the company. That in the beginning, you have to really lean on the founder's knowledge and really, and and, and as I said, like in the relationship building, like not be trying to contra that because they have this time. They've developed this time to really understand the problem space, and it takes some time to to come up with something on your own that can, or to reach that that level. And I think I also needed time for that. That was also like when you're in a new domain, you need that time to really invest in that and understand the problem space and understand the industry. All right, everyone. That's a wrap on this episode with Reem Al-Wahabi. Thanks for tuning in. If you found today's discussion insightful, please make sure to like and subscribe to another product podcast for more tech stories from Europe. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Reem. We'll be exploring cultural fits in hiring, the unique work-life balance in Europe, and vital role of leadership in European startup success. See you in the next episode.